I just want to remind anyone who wasn't at the congregational meeting to please uh, take a look at the announcement page and also to read the sessional report that was read there, but uh, I had copies of that put in the bulletin, so there's important information and announcements in there you might want to, or you will want to look at for sure. Uh, Let us begin our worship now. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Please rise for the call to worship. Psalm 147, verses 1 and 2. Praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God, for it is pleasant and praise is beautiful. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers together the outcasts of Israel. Let us do so now by singing together as we remain standing. Hymn number 105. Please be seated. Let us pray together. 
Great God in heaven, it is good to sing praise to your name this morning and to acknowledge you as the creator and to glorify you as the creator. Uh, we hope to see in the morning text this morning that faith comprehends that you made the word by, uh, sorry, but you made the world by your word and that all that came to be came to be not of things that were visible, but by simply your bare decree and the word of your own power. We thank you, gracious father, that not only you have created a world in which to display your own glory, but that you have enabled us to inhabit that world and to discover and learn about your glory there. And also, as we inhabit it, to commune with you and to praise you. We find that, like Adam, though fallen, we stand in need of our Sabbaths and our Sabbath rest. And we much more than him, because now we are burdened with the curse of labor and the burden of sin. And so, Father, we are doubly thankful that on our Sabbaths we are given rest as weary pilgrims and that we are enabled to be strengthened from your word and from the sacraments and as well from Christian fellowship. Lord, these things to us are too precious to give up and we would we would not give them up. We ask you that you would uh, strengthen and encourage uh, your churches throughout this land and throughout uh, sister countries as well as, for instance, in Canada, where. Now we just read they're finding members, not just elders, for gathering. Uh, it's, it's, it's a sad testimony, O Lord. We find that the church, in her worship, directly is under attack. And we ask you, O God, that you might look after your people, especially as we, uh, like, like Israel in Egypt, we declare our desire and even our fear, uh, that, that uh, our fear, lest you should be against us, to worship you. Lord, we are more afraid of you than of man. We, we plainly de- declare it, and we will see that again in the evening sermon. Uh, what, a, what a fearful thing it is to fall into the hands of the living God. And what a fearful thing it is for man to slight you in your praise. No, God, we will not do this, but we need a bit of strength and a bit of courage, and especially as, as we say our brothers and our sisters elsewhere who are finding it more difficult than we to gather. God, we pray, we realize, we don't pretend as though uh, we live in a bubble and there's no pandemic about us. But we pray that you would keep us safe. We understand to some degree the dangers. We don't pretend as though life is ever safe. Again, I, as I, I plan to say that in the, the sermon this evening. Lord, there's nothing safe about this world. Certainly uh, not worship. It's a highly dangerous enterprise. The most dangerous fact, facet of all is the fact that we're dealing with a God who is holy. And, that, uh, and who might, as we find in Israel and even in the early church, might break out against us in judgment. Yes, Lord, we are afraid... Not to worship you. And yet we find in worship the richest and the highest blessings which can be known to man. And that is communion with the living God and the fellowship of the saints. That indeed will be the life of heaven. We're certain of that. And if ever we wish to get there and to enjoy it, let us begin to enjoy it now. And as Ryle said uh, before us, heaven would be a hell to those who hate church now. Well, Lord, let us love it. We pray that you would adjust not only our practices, but our desires to give us a real love for the Savior and for his worship and to find as good disciples that we love to be taught and instructed of him through the preaching uh, and through the ministry, the whole ministry of the church, which includes, we remember, our brother as well. Lord, we have great responsibility to him, the person in the pew beside us. We ask you that we would not forget our brother. And that our brother wouldn't forget us. And that as we come together, we would see, as Martin Lloyd-Jones says, that there is strength in numbers. We don't want to be worldly about it. We know that you can bless a small gathering, and you do bless a small gathering. But at the same time, we want to see the church as strong as she possibly can be. We want to see uh, the presence of a multitude, if possible. Many gathered under the preaching. And to find, uh, indeed, that 
we are strengthened and encouraged by, uh, as we read in Hebrews, the cloud of witnesses that surround us, even in our very midst. Lord, we know a great many along with us believed and have believed. And so, Father, we pray that though our faith is, is apt to fail and to faint, that you would strengthen us again this morning and that you would give fresh supplies of grace to weary pilgrims, that you would let this day be a Sabbath to us and cause us through a, a renewal of the inner man to press on in our pilgrimage and in our journey on to the heavenly city. And as we are apt to wander and to stray, and even as we saw last week, to stop and to consider turning back, as the pilgrim is apt to do from time to time. We pray that you would renew again to us the call of salvation. Come on to me, you weary, and I will give you rest. For this is the very thing we seek. Sadly, it's what Satan offers as well through his lies. He tells us, just give in and your life will be easier. Give in to a little temptation and the, and, and, and the weariness of the world will will no longer attend you. We know that's a lie, Lord. Experience, if nothing else, has taught us that. The only true rest can be found in Christ. And even then, our lives are filled and attended with many difficulties and many trials that weary us. And so, Father, we pray not only that we might find a little refreshment and rest for our souls this day, but again, that you might greatly strengthen and encourage us to press on into the difficulties that lie before us, that you would strengthen the church and her ministers to boldly declare uh, the things which are found in your word, as Paul did. Not holding back anything which might be profitable to the church, even warning the church, as Paul says. Warning them of the wrath to come and of the great need for faith and repentance. That unless a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Let such preaching be found here and also in the pulpits everywhere. Strengthen again your churches, O God, so weak have they become. It is a matter of lament and for us continual lament. And, and now more than ever, never has the church revealed herself to be so weak and worldly and to have so little faith. And so we ask you, O oh God, that faith might be found here and in many other places and that you might revive again a spirit of faithfulness in the churches and of great zeal and boldness and courage. Indeed, of faith itself, as we look forward to considering together in the morning sermon. But then, O oh Lord, as we close out our prayer, we remember those words which you taught us to say together. Our Father, who art in heaven... Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Now, as a scripture reading, uh, I want to look at two passages. First, Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verse 17 through 25. Both of the passages we are looking at this morning uh, have to do with faith, just as we uh, will find in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1 through 3. And the hallmark of faith as found in those passages is it's dealing with that which is unseen and that which we do not presently possess, thus the need for faith. You don't need uh, faith when you hold something in your hand. That's the whole point, isn't it? But we need to see what faith is and we need to see what faith is capable of. And so hear what God's word has to say. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. 
For I consider that the sufferings of the present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. But because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. For we were, we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? And here's the key point. But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. Uh, the second reading is Second Corinthians chapter 4. Verse 17 through chapter 5 or 7. Uh, again, we see the same emphasis. And I might note, Calvin notes this, it's obvious the more you study it that faith and hope are used interchangeably, especially as this aspect of faith is emphasized, faith dealing with that which uh, lies before us but not presently in our possession. So even though Paul used the word hope in, in Romans chapter 8, uh, he was speaking of this character and this aspect of faith. Uh, and we'll see that in Hebrews. The words are used interchangeably. Here it is faith. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed... We have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For if this, in this we groan earnestly, desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. He's speaking of the resurrection body. If indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who also has given us the spirit as a guarantee. So we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Uh, and more on this in uh, the scripture reading for the sermon and the sermon itself. But for now, let us stand together and sing the doxology. be seated. If you would turn with me now to the back of your hymnal for the Psalter Selection, Psalter Selection 46, a recitation or a reading of Psalm 94. And I'll read the unbolded and together we'll read the bolded sections. O Lord God, to whom 
Vengeance belongeth, O God, to whom vengeance belongeth, show thyself. Lift up thyself, thou judge of the earth. Render a reward to the proud. Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked triumph? How long shall they utter and speak hard things? And all of iniquity boast themselves. They break in pieces thy people, O Lord, and afflict thine heritage. They slay the widow and the stranger and murder the fatherless. Yet they say the Lord shall not, shall not see, neither shall the God of Jacob regard it. Understand, ye brutish among the people, and ye fools, when will ye be wise? He that planted the ear shall he not hear. He that formed the eye shall he not see. He that chastiseth the heathen shall he, he correct. He that teacheth man knowledge shall not he know. The Lord knoweth the thoughts of man that they are vanity. Blessed is the man whom thou chast, O Lord, and teachest him out of thy law. That thou mayest give him rest from the days of adversity until the pit be digged for the wicked. For the Lord will not cast off his people, neither will he forsake his inheritance. But judgment shall return unto righteousness, and all the upright in heart shall follow it. Who will rise up for me against the evildoers, or who will stand up for me against the workers of iniquity? Unless the Lord had been my help, my soul had almost dwelt in silence. When I said, my foot slippeth, thy mercy, O Lord, held me up. In the multitude of my thoughts within me, thy comforts delight my soul. Shall the throne of iniquity have fellowship with thee, which frameth mischief by a law? They gather themselves together against the soul of the righteous and condemn the innocent blood. But the Lord is my defense and my God is the rock of my refuge. And he shall bring upon them their own iniquity and shall cut them off in their own wickedness. Yea, the Lord our God shall cut them off. Now in preparation for the reading and the preaching of God's word, let us stand together and sing hymn number 584.
is my grace. Amen. Please be seated. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1 through 3. It's the sermon text. the word of God. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it the elders obtained a good testimony. By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. And let us pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, uh, God, for the Incredible contents of this chapter especially. We love the book of Hebrews. I know I've come to love it, perhaps most of all, of all the books in the Bible. Lord, this chapter is especially dear to many of us as it highlights and leads us through the whole of faith. And God, we ask you that you would lead us through with faith ourselves together with them as we begin it this this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we begin here a major study on the subject of faith. Obviously, any of you who are familiar with the book of Hebrews and especially Hebrews chapter 11, you will know that the great chapter on faith in the book of Hebrews, obviously not the only one you'll find in the Bible. And it is famous for this, famous among Christian people, one of the most well-known and well-loved chapters in the Bible for this reason, because uh, as we know, uh, the just shall live by faith. He just said that from Habakkuk. This is something we understand, certainly as Protestants. It's something we celebrate. And we celebrate the lives of the saints who uh, embodied a faith like ours. Or, or perhaps I should put that the other way. We seek to have a faith like theirs, which is really the point of this chapter. The chapter explores both the nature of faith as well as, as I've been saying, the examples of faith as found in the Father's. Spanning the whole history of the world up to the time of Christ, which we find uh, in the real conclusion, not the end of chapter 11, but in fact, the beginning of chapter 12. And so as we consider this expanse of history, the history of faith, it begins with uh, creation. In verse three. And it takes us through the great uh, the great periods of redemptive history, beginning with Abel. Uh, the second generation of humanity, the son of Adam and Eve, and then Enoch and Noah. Following that, there's a major focus on Abraham, which is surprising to no one, I wouldn't think. It's the largest section of the survey. It's the portion of the survey that I have referred to repeatedly in the preaching on Hebrews, but also in our preaching uh, through Genesis and Exodus. The New Testament always speaks of Abraham as the man of faith and as the father of all believers. His uh, his life, as we saw in Genesis, was a life of faith. And faith was indeed the hallmark of his life as he wandered through this world as a pilgrim looking for the world to come. And again, as I say, uh, the New Testament in seeking to highlight the centrality and the historicity of faith. Faith, something which is ancient. It isn't the new way that Christ has brought, but it's actually the old way of the father's. Uh, The New Testament tends to point to Abraham 
And again, not surprisingly, if you remember what we said in, uh, and considered together in Genesis, was truly the hallmark of his faith. So when we come to those portions uh, which describe his life in, in chapter 11 here, we'll find familiar emphases. I might also note John chapter 8, James chapter 2, and Romans 4 speak in the same way. Abraham, the man, the father of faith, Galatians 3, uh, and the example, and the list goes on and on. Following this... Uh, our author briefly speaks of the other patriarchs, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. Then there's a bit of a lengthy discussion of the other great man in the Old Testament, who we also discover was a man of faith. They all were, and that is Moses, the second longest section of the book of, or, or the chapter uh, 11 of the book of Hebrews. Then we have something following that of a rapid review of history, as he says in verse 32. He begins to pick up the pace. And what more shall I say for, for time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson? On and on he goes up to his uh, conclusion in verses 39 and 38. All these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise. God having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. And following uh, that He tells us about Christ himself at the beginning of chapter 12, and I'll read those verses um, in a little bit. Christ himself being preeminently the man of faith who went before us and whose faith we are called to emulate as he traveled through this world like we as a pilgrim and entered into heaven. Now, having looked at uh, the chapter very rapidly like that, a survey of its contents, as we begin here, it would seem to me that the first and most obvious question to ask at the outset is why faith? And perhaps more importantly, why here? In other words, why now in chapter 11 does faith become the focus? We've covered 10 chapters of material, uh, and only now do we come to this as our subject and our focus. Part of the trouble we run into in seeking to understand the argument of this great chapter is that we tend to isolate it and treat it on its own. And thus, I fear at times we fail uh, to grasp the true significance of what he's describing here to us. Not on its own, but as part of a broader argument that is found in the book of Hebrews. And I confess that I've been guilty of this myself. I once suggested to Pastor Hobbes that he do so, and he did. He preached chapter 11 on its own. He began in verse 1, he ended in verse 39, and there was the series. And at the time, I confess that I was jealous. I, I was jealous. I wished it was me preaching a series on faith from Hebrews 11 and not him. But now that I preached through Hebrews and finally arrived at this chapter, I suddenly realized that there's no other way to get here, nor to understand what is being said here about faith. You don't just open your Bible and read chapter 11 of the book of Hebrews, still less do you preach it like that. Now, I'm not blaming the prior pastor, I'm blaming myself, it was my idea. But I repent of it now. You have to take the trouble I'm saying To read through and understand chapters 1 through 10 first. As much as we love the chapter, don't open your Bibles and read it. And don't ever let me as a preacher just open there and preach it. Only then do you see why faith comes in here. After you read and after I preach chapters 1 through 10. And especially why it is described and emphasized here in precisely the way that it is. One of the things that we will see and that I'm going to emphasize an awful lot in this first sermon is that we do not have a comprehensive treatment of faith here. If you want a a comprehensive treatment of faith, 
I would say read the confessional statement on saving faith, chapter 14, or read uh, the, the, the confessional, or excuse me, the catechism, larger and shorter catechisms, what is saving faith. Those are wonderful instances of a more or less comprehensive uh, statement or definition. That is not what you find here. What you find instead is a description and a statement about faith that is situated within an exhortation to the church, which is exactly what preaching is, isn't it? Calvin puts this very well when he says, whoever made this the beginning of the 11th chapter has unwisely disjointed the context for the object of the apostle was to prove what he had already said, that there is need of patience. He had quoted the testimony of Habakkuk, who says that the just the just lives by faith. He now shows what remained to be proved, that faith can no more be separated from patience than from himself, from itself, excuse me. In other words, what we ought to see and what we are bound to see, obviously, uh, though we need to be reminded from time to time, don't we? Is that what he says in chapter 11, now faith is, and then he begins to describe it. And he points to the many instances of faith. It doesn't just occur on its own in isolation, even though, as I say, from time to time, we tend to treat it that way as in our own reading. But that it flows, as Calvin says, out of chapter 10. And really, Calvin is saying if he had enumerated the chapters He would not have ended at verse 39 of chapter 10, but he would have included this here as part of chapter 10. What he says when he says, now faith is the substance of things hoped for and so on, flows directly out of what he has just said at the end of chapter 10. Let me read those verses again. Therefore, do not cast away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise For yet a little while, and he who is coming will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith. But if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. And then having said that, there's need of endurance. There's need for patience. Don't you realize that the just shall live by faith? And that we as a church are not those who draw back to the perdition of our souls, but we press on in faith to the saving of our souls. In whom God is pleasure, now faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. Again, not a comprehensive statement, but he is commending faith to us as part of his broader exhortation as found in this epistle. A definition that suits that broader purpose, which is once more as we've seen, not only at the end of chapter 10, but throughout the epistle, to encourage and to instill patience in weary pilgrims. There is need for endurance. He just said that. There is need for steadfastness. He's been saying that since chapter uh, chapter 2, I think. There is need for this for pilgrims who have yet to obtain the promised rest themselves and yet who nearly have. We're nearly at the end. He just said that at the end of chapter 10. We're almost there. Do not turn back, but press on. All that is needful for them is just to hold on a little while longer so that we may not lose what we have gained nor fail to obtain what we have sought. In this, he says, there is need for faith. Faith rightly understood, as Calvin says, and I think as we can see here, connected to patience. And as that which, as Calvin says, directs us to things afar off, which we do not yet enjoy. Though I might add, based upon what we have seen from the end of chapter 10, they are far nearer than perhaps we realize. They are not yet within our grasp, but they nearly are. Namely, the joys and the glories of heaven that await us. 
So in describing the life of faith and the need for faith, he does so as part of this larger exhortation to press on and to obtain the, uh, the, the good things promised to us. The Sabbath rest that remains and awaits the people of God as we journey through the wilderness. Chapters 3 and 4. And this is clear not only from what precedes his discussion of faith in chapter 11, but also and especially from what follows. And here is where I'll read the true conclusion of this chapter, chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. And let us run with endurance. There it is again. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and he sat down, he, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. Let us press on, let us persevere with patience, and yes, with faith. And all of this, as I say, is just a confirmation of what was just said just before chapter 11, verse one and verse 38, when he says not only that the just shall live by faith, quoting Habakkuk chapter two, verse four. But if anyone draws back, my soul is no pleasure in him. And so we have here a definition of faith in verse one, a definition, as I say, which suits his purpose. And is tailored to make his point. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. The evidence of things not seen. Calvin again. It is hence evident. That greatly mistaken are they. Who think that an exact definition of faith is given here. For the apostle does not speak here. Of the whole of what faith is. But selects that part of which. Of it which was suitable to his purpose. Even again we see that it has patience ever connected with it. And there's two main statements here, uh, though in reality they amount to the same thing. He says, first, faith is the substance of things hoped for. That is, faith deals not with what can now be seen or possessed in our hands. That's what I emphasized earlier. And I wanted you to see from Romans chapter 8 and 2 Corinthians 4 and 5. I won't read those again, but I'm referring to them here. It isn't what you see. We live by faith, not by sight. Understand the contrast. Understand that faith deals with what is promised to us, not what we presently possess, again, in our hands or something that we can see. What Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verses 24 and 25, substituting hope for faith. But the point is the same. Whatever we hope for, we do not presently enjoy, but with patience, we eagerly wait for it. And really there, he's describing faith in exactly the way the writer to the Hebrews here is doing. And confirms Calvin's point that the apostle here is seeking to connect faith in particular with patience or with endurance. Again, faith deals, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and 5, not with what can be seen or touched, but that which cannot be seen. The great verities of eternity, God and heaven and Christ who dwells there before the presence of God as our great high priest. And so faith, let me say, deals with the best things, not that which is temporal and transient, the things of this world, but that which is eternal and abiding and permanent. 
It is thus called the substance of that which is hoped for, indicating that faith is substantial, that faith itself has real substance and it gives substance to those things for which it hopes. It makes them appear to the soul as that which is real and best. It is faith which lays hold of the promise and appropriates it to the soul. Faith laying hold of Christ himself, drawing near into the Holy of Holies and meeting him there. Either that or, depending on your translation, and I confess that the Greek word here is capable of either or perhaps both meanings. Perhaps we should see it as both. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. If assurance, though it is a different word than what we find in chapter 6 and chapter uh, 10. Actually, let me read those, verse 11 and verse 22. There we find the same word, which is a more common word, I believe, for assurance. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end. Likewise, 10.22. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. There I might note again the interchangeability of faith and hope. Full assurance of hope, chapter 6. Full assurance of faith, chapter 10. There it's the same word. Here it's a different word, though capable of the same meaning. If, if that is the case here, then obviously he's conveying the same idea. And certainly we're meant to see, as I just said, that faith, hope, and assurance are all connected together, spoken of more or less interchangeably here in the book of Hebrews. They're all part of the same world and the same experience of the believer. Equally, he says, secondly, that Faith is the evidence of things not seen or uh, to use a slightly different translation, which, again, perhaps you have in yours. The conviction of things not seen. If evidence, then faith itself is the evidence of what we hope for. If conviction, which I prefer, then faith functions here exactly as in the prior statement. As that which gives inward certainty as to the things hoped for, just as we find for instance, in verse 13, these all died in faith, not receiving, uh, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on earth. Connected with their seeing of these things was their confidence and their assurance. And so here. What he's saying is that by faith we welcome the things promised to us from afar, confident or convicted that we will receive them. Faith consists of a conviction about these things, the conviction of things not seen. And together we are left with a paradox that only faith comprehends. That as faith tells us these things lie outside our reach and belong only to the future... So faith is also that which brings them into our possession now and makes them certain to us. Faith deals not with that which we hope to be so, but that which we know to be so. It deals with certainties, not with probabilities, especially as faith is founded, as we will later see, not upon what we wish to be true, but upon the very word of God, which is always certain. Faith is, he says, in essence, a confident expectation Concerning the things which God has spoken and promised to us. And so I'm confident in saying and here repeating a point which I have made before. Based upon the teaching of the book of Hebrews. Interacting here a little bit with our confession. That assurance does belong to the essence of faith. It is in fact included as we find here in the scriptural definition of faith. 
And that wherever there is true faith, there ought to be an assurance of that which is believed and hoped for. Faith is, according to scripture, the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Only uh, lest you accuse me of denying the confession, which I have no interest in doing. And to capture the balance and the true meaning of the confession, as I understand it. I would also add, as the confession says in the in that very chapter and that well-known phrase and listen carefully to how it is stated. This infallible assurance does not so belong. It does not so belong to the essence of faith. You, you see, it doesn't say doesn't belong to the essence of faith to discard the connection and the relationship as we often do. It does not so belong to the essence of faith. And there you notice they acknowledge that in some sense it really does belong But that a believer, it goes on, may wait long and conflict with many difficulties before he be a partaker of it. And so I would say that faith properly understood does include assurance as to the things believed. That was the teaching and the conviction of the reformers. And I believe also the men who wrote the Westminster Confession. But as a as a pastoral concession, the confession brilliantly adds that doubts do not erase the presence of faith, something which we all know by experience. That from time to time the believer is apt to doubt and to grow discouraged and to wonder. And even to wonder about himself, do I still believe? There is a kind of faith, it says, which doubts. What the confession in its chapter on saving faith calls weak faith. And that faith may sometimes doubt. Again, as we all know, it may lack a true and a full assurance. And yet it is still rightly called saving faith in the Redeemer. And yet at the same time, I would add, I think capturing the balance of the confession, do not go too far with this thought. Do not seek to disjoint or disassociate these two ideas. Realize they really belong together, even in the confessional teaching that is so often quoted. Realize that the confession also tells us that strong faith does and can include a strong and a full assurance. As for instance, it says again in the chapter on faith. This faith is different in degrees, weak or strong, may be often in many ways assailed and weakened, but gets the victory, growing up in many to the attainment of a full assurance of faith. You see, the faith is assailed, it's tempted, it's tried, but it's growing, it's progressing. It will get the victory and it will grow up and attain in many, not in all, to a full assurance. Also in the chapter on assurance, after making uh, the concession, which I just read, It adds immediately, yet being enabled by the spirit to know the things which are freely given him of God, he may without extraordinary revelation in the right use of ordinary means attain hereunto. Yes, he may. uh, The confession is saying for a time lack assurance, but this is by no means uh, what we should expect to be the normal experience of the believer. The reality is, in fact, he might quite easily attain it without any extraordinary measures, simply by reading his Bible and praying to the Messiah and sitting under preacher, uh, sitting under the preaching, going to church, he will discover that assurance lies close at hand. It is not out of his reach. It isn't the experience of a select few. It is meant for all believers. It is really what every believer ought to have if he has faith. If he understands what faith is and what faith is capable of. And so I say again, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, or to translate it a little differently. It is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So there is our definition. Let us begin by seeing the nature of faith, especially as we learn to see ourselves 
as pilgrims in need of patience, as the chapter will so constantly emphasize. Why it is that faith deals with what we do not presently possess, but one day hope to. Hope there, uh, I'm speaking of it in the strongest possible sense. But then in verse 2, notice what he says. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. The first point, notice second, what it obtains. It obtains a good testimony. By, uh, uh, by it, the elders, or the fathers, I'll call them, obtained a good testimony. We find that again at the end of the chapter. All these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise. We are, what we are meant to see is how the fathers gained a good testimony from God, but also from us through the history of the church. They did so solely by faith. They were approved and accepted. Verse 38, once more, the just shall live by faith. But if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Uh, yes, but God also says implicitly, he who has faith in him, I delight. The just shall live by faith. Faith is what made these men and women famous to the godly in every age. It is what made their lives remarkable and worthy of our study and emulation. Note, as Paul argues in Romans chapter 4, what is in many ways a parallel passage to Hebrews chapter 11, that they, like us, I mean the fathers, these men you read about in the early chapters of Genesis, before Moses even came on the scene, they found nothing by their works. No, he tells us, They found what they sought, namely forgiveness and eternal life and approval and acceptance uh, with God, not because they were righteous, but because they had faith. And so he says in Romans chapter four, verses one through eight, what shall we say? Abraham, our father, has found. Notice that he was seeking something. And how did he find it? He didn't find it by works, he says, but by faith. Look how ancient these paths are. They go all the way back to Father Abraham. What shall we say that Father Abraham, our father, has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he is something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is accounted for righteousness, just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Here saying David, much after Abraham, sought the same thing, namely peace with God, the forgiveness of sins. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. In other words, do you realize that David, uh, like us, had to deal with God, not as a righteous man, not through works, but as a sinner. He had the same dilemma as we. And how was it that he found what he sought, namely forgiveness, reconciliation, righteousness, and so on? He did so by faith. And so we see the truth of what the prophet Habakkuk says, namely that the just shall live by faith. And so it always was. Let me also notice what it was that characterized the faith of these men, the fathers. What it was that characterized their faith, you will not be surprised to hear me saying this, given what I've just said, was their confidence in God. It was the strength of their faith. If you keep reading in Romans chapter 4, you will see this, especially in the case of Father Abraham. Romans chapter 4, verse 18. Who contrary to hope, in hope believed, 
Again, there you notice the connection of hope and faith. In hope, he believed so that he became the father of many nations according to what was spoken. So shall your descendants be. And not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead since he was about a 100 years old. But the deadness or and the deadness of Sarah's womb, he did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God and being fully convinced that he that what he promised, he was also able to perform, and therefore it was accounted to him for righteousness. Notice not only that Abraham had faith, but notice, as Paul says in Romans 4, and as we'll see in Hebrews chapter 11, the kind of faith they have. He did not waver in unbelief. He was sure. He was certain. And so he waited with patience until he obtained what was promised to him, namely the promised son, Isaac. He had to wait a long time for that son, some 25 years. And more importantly, as we'll discover in Hebrews, the greatest thing he sought was heaven itself. Such is the exact argument that we find as well in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 9 through 15. Again, notice the emphasis, faith, hope, assurance, perseverance. And notice who he brings in, Abraham. But beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation that we speak in this manner. For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you have shown toward his name in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And who are those? Well, it's Abraham again. For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, surely blessing, I will bless you and multiplying, I will multiply you. And so after he patiently endured, that is, after he waited, he obtained the promise. And we will find the same thing as we go on throughout chapter 11. Let me also notice that for them, these these pilgrim fathers. That faith was lively and active. It was something that was tested and tried constantly as they passed through this dark world. But as it was lively and active, it was also always growing and progressing. It was getting the victory, as our confession says. And growing up to a full assurance of faith. And so we find that these men were active in good works. And quick to believe all that God had said and promised to them. And it was in this way. As we find here and in verse 39, that they obtained a good testimony, not only by God, but by the church through the ages and not in any other way. Not because they were so righteous and wonderful. In fact, it's embarrassing at times to read of their lives, the kinds of sins they committed. I just read through Genesis again and I was embarrassed for Abraham, the way he kept selling out his wife. And then his son did the same thing. What is celebrated about these men? Well, go on to David. You see the same thing. What was celebrated about them was that they found forgiveness through faith. They were great sinners like we and they like we had to deal with God, not as righteous men, but as sinners. Yes, the just shall live by faith and in no other way. And oh, that we would see it. And oh, that we would be like those who stood out for their remarkable faith, despite some of the most trying providences. The point here is, as we will study the history Of the hall of faith, let Israel and us see that these men and women were pilgrims like us who had to wait. Let us glory not in their works, but in their faith. 
People who obtained precious little from God in this life and who endured many cruel hardships besides. But who set their lives and their hope toward a better country and what sustained them all the way to the end of their journey was their faith. It gave them patience. It gave them confidence and certainty. It made them wait with eagerness for, uh, for, for that which was promised to them. It made them happy to be counted pilgrims for this short span of life. If only they might inherit the promises in the end. Again, chapter 11, verse 13. And so if we wish to be like them, not only in their lives, but in the outcome of their lives, let us study and seek to have a faith like theirs. But finally... Looking now at the third verse, not what was obtained, but here what is, under, what, what is understood, we discover another faculty of faith, namely that by faith we understand or comprehend. In other words, he brings in here something that we sometimes fail to do with faith because we listen too much to the world and its definition of faith. The world seeking uh, to disassociate faith and reason and to see them at odds. That isn't the scriptural definition of faith. Faith, as I will argue, is in fact the highest form of reason. He brings in the mind, the understanding. And the way he says that faith comes to possess knowledge or understanding is by revelation. Uh, Chapter 6 agrees here with chapter 11. It is through the speech of God. It was God who spoke to Abraham and so Abraham believed. And it was counted to him as righteousness. And in no other way stated here as simply as this by the word of God, by faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. We come to understand. By the revelation that God gives, namely by his own speech, which is intelligible to us only by faith. The believer says with Augustine, I believe in order to understand. And by faith, he comes to understand that which he could not in any other way. And so faith, I say again, is not unthinking, far from it. It is, in fact, the highest degree of thought. And something that we discover in our study of history is that many of the greatest thinkers that the world has ever known were believers. They were Christians. Faith here in verse three, as well as in earlier chapters, which I'll look at in a moment, is understood as the believing and intelligent reception of divine revelation. The mind is not turned off, still less the reason. It is just the opposite. By faith, the mind and the reason are engaged with divine thoughts. Thus, faith is intelligent in every sense and in the highest possible sense. When God speaks to us in his word, he does so that we might understand his ways and his being. Indeed, but for his speech, nothing would be intelligible to us. We would, like the heathens, grope continually in the dark, like unreasoning beasts. And if you go back... To to what his argument was at the very beginning of the epistle, as well as what he said uh, in chapters two and three. You will remember that intelligent, receptive hearing of God's word is precisely what faith is. Consider again such statements as these, the beginning of chapter one. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his son. Chapter two, verse one, therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. Chapter three, verse seven, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion in the day of trial in the wilderness and on and on. He goes along those lines. God is speaking. 
He's speaking in his word. He spoke long ago through the prophets. He speaks today through his son. He speaks every time we open our Bibles and read them or through the preaching. Think also of what Jesus says repeatedly in the Gospels. Not only about the word which is sown through the preaching, but equally about the hearing, which is the point of the parable of the sower. What matters is not solely that the word goes forth, but how it is received. Is it received through the, uh, through the receptive, intelligent hearing by faith? The one who hears, Jesus says, is the one who understands and takes to heart the message of the gospel. That is the one who has faith. And what is it precisely that faith comprehends first and foremost? Well, we see here in verse 3 that the first thing faith comprehends, the first thing that faith believes about God as God reveals himself to us, is that he is our creator and that all that came to be came to be by his agency. That indeed nothing came into being in any other way, that God did not construct the universe with preexistent material, but all that was made was made ex nihilo, that is, of nothing. Just what is being said here. By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. So that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. What faith comprehends is that God made the world of nothing. That God created the world solely by the instrumentality of his own word. That God in his infinite power spoke the world into existence as we find in the first chapter of Genesis. And God said, let there be light and there was light the first day. And God said, and so there was the second day and on and on and on. And so the world came to be in no other way. And it is the same word, the word which created the world. And the word which became incarnate and dwelt among us, John chapter 1, which reveals the truth about God to us now. The whole point of the book of Hebrews, chapters 1 through 3, is that God has been speaking all along and he's still speaking today. The question which you need to ask yourself is, do you have ears to hear? God's speech is both creative and revelatory. And thus we discover, not surprisingly... That the creation itself bears the same character of revelation. That God is speaking to us through the world he has made. He's revealing himself. The creation, as scripture tells us, both declares and reveals his glory to us. As Calvin says, the the, the words here contain a very important truth. That we have in this visible world a conspicuous image of God. That the invisible things of God are made known to us by the creation of the world. The world was no doubt made that it might be a theater of the divine glory. And we can't help uh, but here think of what is said in Psalm 19. The heavens declare your glory. And so the more we consider his work of creation, the more we discover about the one who created. And the more apparent it becomes to us and the more clearly faith comprehends that the worlds were framed by the word of God. So that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. Rightly, then, do we conclude that there is no greater madness, no lower form of reasoning than that which suggests that the world came to be by its own secret energy. And yet that seems to be the prevailing wisdom of our atheistic age today, doesn't it? It simply came to be. And yet we have little difficulty seeing why even the learned of this world believe it to be so. They lack faith. 
And lacking faith, they fail to comprehend the most basic truth about the universe itself, which they pretend to understand, namely that once more. God created it by the word of God. And that the things that are seen were not made of that which was visible. And thus they are left only with what their own puny minds can fathom. So much for so-called science today. And we might rightly say of them, What they study and profess to teach and understand, they do not understand. Since true knowledge of anything must be able to account for the source of its being. And that is precisely what they cannot do with the very world they seek to describe. They do not believe. They do not understand. Yes, but we who are of faith understand not only that God is and that he is the rewarder of all who seek him. And that without faith it is impossible to believe God. But also... We understand the world he has made. Verse 3. We have grasped what many scientists seem to think unnecessary. Namely, the first principle of this world, how it came to be. We We may lack much knowledge and understanding about this or that facet of this world. But one thing we understand with perfect clarity, and that is that God has made the world. And that whatever we discover by learning about this world is a discovery about God first and foremost. And whatever reveals his glory to us must move us to praise him as the creator of all things, which is the proper work of faith. To God alone be the glory that every man and every scientist say. And so it's easy to see why it is that without faith it is impossible to please God. Since faith ascribes everything to him and seeks to understand everything, even the world itself, in terms of his own work and his own power. Much remains to be said on the subject. We've only begun to consider it in our study on faith. Next time we will look at the faith of Abel and Enoch and Noah. But for now, as we begin our study of faith from Hebrews chapter 11, let us notice these things about faith. First of all, what it is, the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, what it obtains, namely a good testimony, and what it comprehends, namely that God has made the world of nothing. And let us with the Father seek to have a faith like this. Amen. And let us come to the table. Mark chapter 14. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed it and broke it and gave it to them and said, take eat. This is my body. Then he took the cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank from it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many. Assuredly, I say to you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day. When I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Well, as I keep saying, there's uh, there's no need to give a comprehensive treatment. We're not doing this once a, once a month anymore, just uh, just once a week or, or as much as once a week, which is thankful, uh, something to be thankful about. Uh, and it, it, it means I think that the best way to explain the supper is to connect it to the sermon each time. 
which is thankfully an easy task uh, as I preach through Hebrews. Maybe not so easy in the future, though we'll see. What is the emphasis here? Well, obviously the emphasis is faith, but then we ask the question, faith of what kind? And the answer is a faith which is certain and confident and a faith which is persevering because we realize that the things we believe and the things that we hope for, we do not presently enjoy. We still have to pass through this dark and weary land. Uh, and some of us are very tired indeed and wondering how much further we can make it. Uh, and I have something to say for you in the evening sermon along those lines. As Israel sets out into the wilderness, they've only just begun. And we might wonder why God led them into the wilderness and not the direct route into Canaan. There's a great spiritual lesson there. Many troubles await us and many difficulties. And as I say, we may be fainting and wondering, will we make it to the end? And it's for that reason that we find in worship, especially not only our Sabbaths, which refresh us, but we find means of grace, which assure us. We do not find saving efficacy at the, at, at the table. We find that only at the cross and Christ spilled blood. There is where our salvation is found. Why did he give us the preaching? Why did he give us the table? He did so to strengthen the inner man, not to save him, but to strengthen him. To give him tokens of his grace, visible and audible tokens of his grace. Remember, faith comes by hearing first and foremost. So we put, place the priority on the preaching. But there are still things that we're able to see and to lay hold of and to draw encouragement from. And so the Lord's Supper is not our salvation, but it signifies and seals our salvation. That's how scripture speaks of it. It both signifies Christ's body and blood, but it seals it as well, which is the language not only of faith, but of assurance. God would have us not only to have faith, but to have a strong faith, which attains to a full assurance of faith. And, and this is one of the means by which he seeks to help us get there. If you ever read the Puritans on the Lord's Supper, it's amazing the spiritual view they had of it. The, the, intense, uh, the intensely uh, deep and personal transaction that occurred in their minds between the believer and Christ at the table. And the greatest thing that Christ was seeking to instill in us was a confidence in him. In other words, an assurance of faith. I hope you're getting the point by now. We'll just keep making it until we all have an assurance, I hope. Uh, so that's what we have here. At the same time, uh, as, as, I am, uh, as I am compelled to do as a minister of the gospel, I must also warn the wayward and the impenitent and the unbelieving and he who would slight and trample Christ's blood underfoot not to come to the table. It is not for you. It's only for believers and those who find in Christ their very salvation. With those words, let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we, we find great blessing here at the table, and, and we wish to really deal with Christ our Savior here. Pray, O oh Lord Jesus, that you would meet us through the preaching and through the, the sacrament, and that you would strengthen weary pilgrims uh, with a little bit and perhaps a lot more faith uh, to grow up and to persevere into, our, uh, to, into a full assurance of hope until the end. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Beginning with the bread, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, blessed it, broke it, and gave it to his disciples. As I, ministering in his name, give this bread to you.
Our Lord Jesus said, take, eat, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, our Savior also took the cup and having given thanks as has been done in his name, he gave it to his disciples as I ministering in his name, give this cup to you. As a reminder, the outer ring is wine, the inner rings are grape juice. Our Lord Jesus said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Drink of it, all of you. Now, as we close out our worship, let us stand together and sing hymn number 426.
receive now the Lord's blessing, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all.